Okay, now if you'll take out your insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are covering too much today. Just, uh, I think it was New Year's Eve, I made a quick trip to the store, and uh, I decided I was going into the store, I'm like, I don't need a cart, I'm just getting a couple things. Is it a male problem? I'm not sure. But I went in, and I had a list from Carmen, and then I got, I, oh, I was like, oh, you know, we're short on Lysol wipes. So I got one of those, like, four-pack of Lysol wipes. I'm coming, I thought, you know, people are coming over. I'm going to get one more bottle of wine just in case. And so I go, and I'm just like this, and I'm trying to grab this bottle of wine off the shelf with my one finger. And I get off the shelf. I take three steps, and I realize this is a very bad idea. Right, because I'm going to drop. I was at Walmart and Fishers. I'm going to drop this bottle of wine. It's going to everywhere. So I got down on my knees and just left the bottle right there at the sh- and just walked away. <laughs> I had too much. Um, Roman, uh, Romans, Revelation eight nine is too much at one time. But so here we are. It's really should be Revelation eight nine ten and eleven. That's the section. But we can't do that. And so just please understand that after I preached this, the first service, I realized, wow, there's a lot in here, and we're just barely scratching the surface of it. To that end, I would encourage you in this commentary, it's called Revelation, a shorter commentary by G.K. Beale. I know you like short. Well, the other one's 1,300 pages long. This is only 560. Uh, this, I think, is the most accessible and helpful commentary on Revelation. If you want sort of like a verse by verse, it's maybe, I don't know, 28, 30 bucks. It, you, could, you, know, you could study this for a couple years and be edified by it and have a more clear lens on Revelation's picture, heaven's view of this world. Um, so, and I'll refer you to a bunch of stuff he says in Revelation 8 and 9 that I'm not going to talk about. So encourage you to think about that book. Um, Let me pray, and we'll look at this passage. Lord, we need your help. Thank you for the book of Revelation. It's beautiful, mysterious, marvelous, um, a little bit dense and complex, but it's a gift to your church. So we pray that we may be blessed as we hear it, as we read it, as we study it together, in spite of our limitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're talking about prayer and judgment. Prayer and judgment, two things that we struggle with for different reasons, but I think we both struggle, we all struggle with both prayer and judgment. Hopefully, uh, Revelation will help us in that, to have less of a struggle with that a little bit. Uh, One of the things I think we're tempted to come to the book of Revelation with is this idea that we need sort of a secret decoder ring for it. When I was young, at least, they, in cereal boxes and in Cracker Jack boxes, they had little, little toys. I think they stopped doing that because probably some kid choked on it and there was a lawsuit. That's how, things, that's how good things stop. Um, but you, you get a decoder ring which had two circles on it, and your friend got the same decoder ring, and you know, two circles of the alphabet, basically. One letter equaled the other letter. Like So you turn like, oh, A, and this one, A is actually an M, and I is actually a C. And you could, you could write out a, let, a note and say, pass it to someone, and it looked like gobbledygook just to read it in English. But if you had the secret decoder ring, you could decode the message, right? That's, I think, how we're tempted to think about the book of Revelation. I just need the decoder ring for it. This means that. And what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I don't think that's how apocalyptic literature works. It's not an allegory where one thing means another thing. It is a story of rich symbols and rich images that together mean something and especially meant something in that day. Uh, maybe a, a way, now this is a poor way, but maybe a way to think about it is 
as a very rich and textured political cartoon. On the back of your insert is a political cartoon. And uh, I tried to offend everybody and make it old at the same time. So this is a criticism of two former presidents, but they're former former presidents. So, so this, I think, from what I can tell, if you could look at this, okay, this is a kind of a criticism of both President Obama and President Bush's uh, actions in the Middle East. The, president, uh, the, the criticism of Bush was that he was too involved. He was a tinkerer. He was, in, he was operating on the Middle East, looks like, with a, a rocket and surgical scissors and a wrench and everything's, you know, kind of exploding around. And uh, he apparently is a lightning rod, if that's lightning. The, that's his criticism. Over-involved, too much tinkering. Criticism of President Obama, well, you read a lot, but you don't do anything. <laughs> You're totally uninvolved. All the while, the Middle East burns, like those two criticisms. And so he's there reading it. He's got a brief on ISIS, and he's just sitting thinking as the Middle East is on fire. Those are represent. Now, I don't care if you agree with it. That's the, what this, the, the uh, I think everybody would say that's kind of what the cartoon's getting at. And we kind of know that if you have a, you know, if you're older than, if you've, if you've been around a while. You remember Obama, you remember Bush, and okay, those are fair criticisms. I kind of see the likenesses. It doesn't really look like them. It's a caricature where their features are blown up. Look at their ears, you know, okay. look at Bush's cowboy boots and all that kind of stuff. Now, we know that it's a political cartoon. It has tons of meaning for us, and it's the beginning of things, and we could look at that longer. There's probably a lot of other things embedded in there we're not quite sure of, but imagine today our civilization gets wiped out, nothing, and in 2,000 years, an, archaeology digs, an archaeologist digs this up, and this is what's left of our civilization. And it'd be like, wow, was that a race of giants? Where their people were so big they could sit on top of the globe? Okay, we know that's not the case. Were they so simple that they thought there were giants like that? And we might say, well, hold on a second. We're not. So we understand about symbolic language and that kind of imagery and what it's communicating and what it does. Um, you know, the first century people were no less sophisticated than we are, right? They understand what elevated language is. They understand what uh, image-rich, image-dense language is, what these pictures, that these pictures are representing tons and tons of things. And so I just think it's more helpful to think about this as a very vibrant, living picture political cartoon, if you will, not cartoonish, but with rich images and rich meaning, where visions and symbols and images picture things. You're that old phrase, a, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, we, that makes sense to us because we realize pictures tend to generate conversation and ideas where words can tend to conclude conversations and ideas. And I think the book of Revelation is meant for us to begin to think about things and stoke our imaginations. One of those things is here is prayer, prayer. So let's look at Revelation 8, 1 through 5. And as normal, as we have done for a few weeks, I will read the, the regular text. You read the bold text. And this is a lighter attended service than first service. So turn up the volume just a little bit on your reading. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets that were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel 
Okay, so this is an, part of the interlude that we saw last week. If you look at the literary structure of Revelation, it's quite magnificent. It, the way the seals work is that the, la, the seventh seal interlocks with and overlaps with the first trumpet. So we said the seven seals take all of human history, and you get to the last one, and what you have is the first trumpet, which also looks at all of human history. And at the last trumpet, you get the first vision, which looks at all of human history. And the last vision, you get a first uh, bull, which looks at all of human history. Uh, and so one begets another, and they kind of circle the same thing. If you turn back over underneath the political cartoon, there's a picture of what's called a, the Penrose Staircase, which is an optical illusion in two dimensions, can't exist in three dimensions, where you could go up that staircase forever, but the last stair is the beginning of the next staircase, and it's actually just circling the same thing. It shows up in an M.C. Escher drawing called Ascending and Descending, I believe. And also in the movie Inception. But um, had to have CGI for that one. It wasn't real. But the, uh, so the, and, at each step, if you will, if this is how, the, this is the literary structure of Revelation in some way. The end of the, the, end of the seals is the beginning of the trumpets, and, but it's actually going around the same thing. And at that interlocking and overlapping place in each of these, there's an interlude where God sits, pulls, calls time out, pulls back, shows us a grand vision of something. Last week we saw part of the interlude was the, the 144,000, the church, the, number, the group that no one could number. That's the interlude. Well, the next part of that is this passage. Romans, I keep saying Romans, also a good book. We're in Revelation, though. Revelation 8, 1 through 5, where what's pictured here at this first staircase where God's saying, this is the, what I'm doing in history over and over again is the prayers of all the saints, not just those who were martyred like we saw back in, in Revelation 6, but all the saints now mixed with the incense and that which is at the altar. Now, in the Scripture, the altar is the place of sacrifice. So you have an altar right after you have a lamb who is standing as though slain. So what you have here is the prayers of all the saints mixed with the sacrifice of Christ at the altar. It mixes together. It ascends to heaven. And then what happens? What happens after the prayers of the saints and the sacrifice of Christ come together and ascend to heaven is Revelation 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through 22. What happens is God's working out his will on earth in response, in, in, in yeah, reaction or response to the prayers of saints and the sacrifice of Christ rising. What happens is judgment and redemption on this earth. What is this communicating? Revelation, we said, is an unveiling. It reveals to us something that was mysterious before. Sometimes that revealing reveals something that is still a mystery to us at least for now. And that is this in this case, that the sovereign, God is sovereign. We just sang about that. He's, he absolutely controls things. I don't know how that works. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He knows the begin from the end the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We've already heard all of that. He sits on the throne of heaven. He's sovereign over history, complete in power, and he authentically, really, and uh, earnestly uses the prayers of his people in the outworkings of his will on earth. I don't exactly know how that happens, how it works. That's left to the eternal counsels of God, but we're shown here that it happens, and we can respond to that. How? By praying. 
This means that the fruitfulness of this little church, New City Church, is dependent on, completely dependent on the sovereign plan of God and tied to the prayer meeting that happened before the 8 a.m. service. There's a women's prayer meeting, praying for this church. God really uses that for the fruitfulness and the blessing of this church and your neighbors through you. Really and truly. I'm not sure how all that works together. That's beyond me. That's fine. It's a mystery to me, but Revelation reveals that right here. This means that the fruitfulness of Ryan and Katie in Central Asia is related to God's sovereign plan for them. And Daryl Capp's prayer for them just before this and your prayer for them in your days. He really, honestly, truly uses that. It means the fruitfulness of Joy and Salim in one part of Africa and uh, Michael and Canaan in another part of Africa is dependent on God's sovereign plan and tied to the prayers of his people. It means that Bob's fruitfulness on campus and Dustin's fruitfulness on campus in this city is dependent on the sovereign plan of God and tied to the prayers of his people. The growth, your growth in the spirit is dependent on God's sovereign initiative by his spirit and tied to your prayers for your own growth. So I think I often struggle with prayer, frankly, because I'm not quite sure it makes a difference. Because I'm like, well, God's sovereign in control. What's the matter? And so some people try to solve that by saying, well, maybe God self-limits his sovereignty. But it's like, why solve it on that end? God reveals right here, I'm still sovereign. I'm so sovereign, I can use your prayers and wrap them into my plan earnestly and authentically, even though it's my plan from before the foundation of the world. Right? So I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged by this. Right? God uses our prayers in our own life, in our family, in our church, in our city, for our missionaries. He really uses them. And if we, we cannot say, I'm not going to act on that until I understand how it works, or we'll, we'll never get there. He's just saying, let me just give you the picture. You pray. Jesus gives himself. That's mixed together, comes up to heaven. And what comes down is my, my will in the earth. So the simple application, let's give ourselves to prayer. It's good. That could be the end of one sermon, right? That'd be kind of short, and we would still have a lot of text left. Problem with these interlocking and overlapping, it's hard to know where to cut it. So we're going to now move into, you know, two things that gets unfolded in earth are judgment and redemption. Judgment it contains is, the, is the rest of this text, and the redemption is like Re- Revelation 10 and 11. We're not going to get there today. It's going to kind of end in judgment. Um, we've got to stop somewhere. Okay, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Trumpets in the Scripture typically are warning. And what is coming here are warnings given to the earth for those who... Uh, who do not follow the Lamb about the consequences of their rebellion. These are warning judgments against the consequences of their rebellion. Now, personally, sometimes I just want to confess, I have an issue with the judgment of God. Sometimes I, this is in my fleshly response, it's kind of embarrassing. Because it's a, it's sort of a target for a lot of critics of the gospel. Oh, God seems pretty judgmental. Why does he have to be so judgmental? Yada, yada, yada. And I kind of want to shy away from that, right? Well, there's something sick in my heart about wanting to shy away from that. 
And if you want to shy away from that, there's something sick in your heart too. We want the approval of people. I totally get that, right? Um, Sometimes I see all the evil and destruction in this world, and especially when somebody who's not me is doing it, and um, I say, that's right. Get him, God. Judge him now. More, right? Um, That's also pretty sick, right? That's, That's not a biblical posture on understanding the judgment of God. I think we get a little bit, maybe this will help it be a little clearer. I think what we see here is that God's activity in our world, even in warning, exposes the folly and destruction of sin, and it calls people to himself. God's activity in our world, even warning, intends to expose the folly and destruction of sin and, the, and reveal the goodness of life in him. So if you think about what sin is, sin is simply acting or being in a way contrary to our created way of life and the God who created life. So there's a, that's moving against our, how we're created to live and the God who created us to live, who is life. So moving against life has consequences, namely death and destruction. That's just natural. That's the way the universe is. We move against death, life, we get death. That's the consequence. Those consequences generally don't show up immediately. I didn't put this in here. Maybe I should have. In in Romans 2, in this sort of blanket warning to humanity, Paul writes, "Do do, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what he's saying there is there are natural consequences for sin, individually, corporally, for humanity. It's moving against life. There's a consequence of death. But God is very patient, typically. He doesn't doesn't allow those consequences immediately. But what happens is when, when he's so patient, is people typically or often say, well, I guess there's no consequences. There shouldn't be any consequence. Look, I did this, or this group of people did this, or this, this systemic evil is here, nothing happened, so boom, no consequences. The warning there is, oh, don't you understand, what's happening is it's being filled up. And so you can picture like a dam being filled up, or the Old Testament picture is a cup that's getting filled up with the consequences of this. And God is gracious in his patience in that he just doesn't dump it out all the time. But occasionally, he'll tip the cup just a little bit or open the floodgates just a little bit. So some of that comes through. We call that in this earth judgment. Now, not the final judgment. It's a uh, non-final judgment. It's intermediate judgment. Uh, Now, remember, it's not like God is on his throne thinking, oh, I really hate these people. What can I do to make them miserable? I want to do that. I'm going to get them that way and get them that way and get them that way. Um, he is, he is, it is him giving permission for sin to be sin, for evil to be evil, and for disaster to be disaster, for the fullness of the, the putridness of sin to be what it actually is in this earth, where normally he's restraining it. That's what this is. So I'm, I'm cutting a fine line here, and I want you to understand it, because it is a fine line. Judgment in Scripture is God actively acting, right? It is maybe him pouring out. 
But what he's pouring out is just what our sin is in its fullness of effect on this earth and in our lives. So it is, it is a little foretaste of what would come more later. An appropriate response to this could be something like a clarity of saying, you know what, I am wrong. I see that, I see sin having its effect in the earth. I'm part of that. I, I, I in my own way, I contribute to that. I need a rescuer. That would be an appropriate response. And Revelation 10 and 11 shows us, oh, it's the gospel response. Another unfortunate often response, and more often, is a hardening. Where we see evil run amok in this world, and we say something like, maybe not we say, it's often what's said is like, how dare God do this? How dare God do this? Of course, the problem with that is like, God didn't do this. You did this. You did this. If we went, let's say we, we wanted a new car, went over to Ed Martin Honda, looked at their Honda CRV hybrid, loaded $43,000, unloaded $40,000. Either way, I would just look at them. But, um, but let's say I, oh, I wanted this car. I wanted this car. And I'm saying, you know, I don't really have the cash for this, so I'll, I'll buy it on credit. And you go, and credit's good enough. So you sign the papers, drive off the lot with a free car. It's amazing. In America, great. All you have to do is sign your name. And then they start sending these papers to the mail. They say, you owe something, right? And you say, I don't want to pay that. You say, no. You say no to all the papers. They may call you from Ed Martin. You say, no. A collections agency calls you. You say, no, no, no. You ignore it all. You ignore it, you ignore it, you ignore it. And one day, somebody from Ed Martin shows up with a Marion County Sheriff. And they take the car back. And you don't have a car. And your credit is wrecked. And you're so angry. And you call Honda on the phone and say, how dare you do this? In some Honda exec, who I hope would have the courage to say this, would say, we didn't do this, you did. <laughs> yeah, this is yours. Judgment in this world is not God doing anything. It is him giving us back what we have done, actively giving us back. He's doing that. But he's giving us back what we have done. And that is what the trumpets are getting at. The trumpets are more intense than we saw the seven seals. Those are distress in the earth. The trumpets are more intense. They are warning. The bowls are final judgment, right? So, uh, and a lot of these will call to mind some of the plagues of Egypt. But what we see is uh, something happens in the heavenlies, and then stuff happens on earth that, that we sort of feel the consequence of here. But this is... Um, this is elevated language. This is elevated language, and we kind of have to pick a lane when we're interpreting these sort of things. So we're going to read through these trumpets, and people have written lots and lots of books on what this means, what the, you know, all the specifics. I'm not there. You know, you can, pick, you can, you can over-interpret or under-interpret it. Predictably, I'm going to be a little more conservative and say, I think it's better to under-interpret this. Partly because what's being used here is an elevated form of language that the Bible has already used. Let me just read to you from Isaiah 13. Uh, when, so Babylon has taken Israel, uh, Judah off into captivity, but God is going to judge Babylon by sending the Persian army to destroy them. King Cyrus of Persia is going to destroy Babylon, and he gives a prophecy of what it's going to be like for Babylon when Persia rushes in and destroys him. Here's the language from Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes... Uh, 
the, comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will, uh, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of, its fierce, ang- of his fierce anger. So Persia's coming in and, God, and the prophet's like, this is what it's going to be like. The stars are going to be darkened. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon's going to be darkened. Heaven's going to shake and the earth is going to shake, right? Now, they had earthquakes. That's probably not what they're talking about. They're like, the whole world is ending. That's what it seemed like to the Babylonians because Cyrus the Great was marching in and destroying everything. So this is elevated language. It's the same stuff we see here, right? So uh, it wasn't that Cyrus came in and all of a sudden the, the sun went supernova and it was no more. It's elevated language. So we see that. So... Let's read this together. Verse 7, again, you read the bold. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. So again, this might, you know, this calls to mind the Egyptian plagues of hail and fire. And in their history, they understood those plagues were given against idolatry and hardness of heart and persecution of God's people. Um, and then what happens on the earth is a third of things are destroyed. Now, we don't, if, you know, I could give a, a possibility. What if this is environmental destruction brought on by selfishness and warfare? The sin. Think of how much of the earth is destroyed because of selfish decisions of people and competitive decisions of people. Maybe that's what this is talking about. I'm not sure. It wasn't uncommon in those days for warfare, for a warfare technique would be just to go into an area and lay siege to a city and then burn all the fields and all the crops around it. So even if you didn't defeat that city, they eventually would starve to death. That was a the typical war, conquering warfare in those days. And, and also, when, even in Deuteronomy 20, when God says to his people, even if you're at war, you may not do that because the earth is mine. You may not do that. You may not lay waste that way and just burn everything. But that was common. Um, maybe also led to famine because they burned all the crops. But that, what we're seeing here is these, um, these angels are blowing the trumpet at God's behest, but this isn't from the Lord. He is pouring out something that is, that is evil. He is using that and letting it have its full effect. As humanity is evil and destructive, what happens is destruction and evil on the earth. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and the third of the ships were destroyed. Now, maybe they would be remembering, oh, Mount Vesuvius. I remember that. Kind of that imagery. 79 AD explodes, destroys. Pompeii buries it, makes it a great archaeological dig for us, but just destroyed everything. Smoke went up from that area for years. We don't know if that's, they're remembering this sort of thing. A third of the sea became blood. It kind of reminds you of the plague, the Exodus plague, of the blood of the Nile. Uh, it was a plague on the supposed goddess of life of the Nile. Maybe this is the destruction of commerce where the ships get destroyed and further famine, right? 
Um, living creatures of the sea die. No fishing. Destruction of commerce. Again, think of how much of this happens, not just because of natural disaster, but because of competitiveness and hostility and warfare. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, I'm not saying this is that, right? We're not decoding this. Maybe this is the expression of basic sustenance being eliminated because of sinful competition and destruction and warfare. Maybe it's like even drinking water, right? Which seems strange to us in America that our drinking water would be undrinkable because of, you know, foreseen problems that could have been solved, but people out of selfishness didn't. It would be no pro- it's hard for us to imagine unless we live in Flint, Michigan. Like that happened a couple years ago. Because of sinful, stupid decisions of people. It, that happened. And even though it's hard for us to imagine, right? It happened. But it happens all the time in Mexico, South America, large parts of Africa. This is probably also like hyperlinked back to Exodus 15 where they're in, traveling in the wilderness. And they come to a place which they then call Mara, which means bitter, because the drinking water was bitter. And what they did is they called on the Lord to, to fix it, and he did. So maybe here's what it's saying, like, is the appropriate response to this is calling on the Lord. Help us. That's the appropriate response. Wormwood, uh, commentators are super divided in all this, like on all of this trumpet stuff, by the way. Like, um, wormwood was a, a herb that they used, kind of like we might, well, what do we use now? My grandma used to use mothballs. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's some toxic chemical you put in clothes to keep moths away. That's what wormwood was used. I kept, kept moths from um, eating your clothes. But if it gets in the water, it's really bad. It's not poisonous, but it tastes so bad you don't want to drink it. Also, interestingly, in Jeremiah 9, the guardian angel of the city of Babylon, God called wormwood. As Revelation goes on, Babylon becomes emblematic of the entire city of man in rebellion against God. So we'll see how that goes. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, as mentioned before, this is warfare language from Isaiah. It's all kinds of destruction on the earth because of the sin of people. This probably calls to mind the the plague of darkness on Egypt. Now, we're not going to take this literally and say one-third of the the sun is removed, okay? Okay, if that's the case, you just put a period on it, and then humanity's done. It just doesn't work. I did a little calculation in my head, on pen and paper. So, in my mind, Mars is far enough away from the sun farther than us, that it would have about 66% of the sun's brightness that we do. I know it's not right, but it's about the same. The, ne- the average temperature on Mars is like negative 81 degrees. So nobody lives there for a reason, right? Um, if the sun was eliminated by a third, everybody would die. It's not the literal thing. It's saying this is apocalyptic language. But even if that, it's not total destruction. It's limited. One third. One third. Verse 13, then I looked... 
And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels were about to blow. Helpful if I read it and if I read it correctly. Sorry about that. Um, so we're not sure here that word eagle could also be translated vulture. <laughs> we don't know if it's uh, this elevated picture of an eagle or a vulture like flying over dead bodies. But what he's saying is it's going to get even more intense. And what it looks like here is happening is that it's moving from, from physical calamity as a result of sin to spiritual calamity as a result of sin. So we're at Revelation chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were, not, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So that the seal of God we saw last week is the Holy Spirit. So this is those who do not have the Spirit are liable to be harmed by this fifth trumpet. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of, scorpion, of a scorpion when it stings someone. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like a woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like a noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Okay, Apollyon and Abaddon or Abaddon, it can be pronounced both ways, but it just means destroyer destroyer. So this star fallen to earth, that's almost the exact same language Jesus uses when he sends his disciples out with the gospel of the kingdom and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to earth. So this is this, what we have here, just putting this all together and again, you want to check out more of it, read Greg Beale in his shorter commentary. This is demonic influence that creates misery for people on earth who do not embrace the Lamb. Demonic influence that creates misery for people on earth who do not embrace the Lamb. So that people would rather die than live. But perhaps because of the fear of death, they don't. Now this is limited also. It's five months. It's not eternal. It's not, not ongoing. Five months, which is in that culture the life cycle of a locust. Now I don't know about this whole like um, they would rather die, but they don't die. Now you could go to a freshman philosophy class and realize most philosophers are miserable people. <laughs> like you just eventually, your philosophy would lead you to commit suicide. And many of them do, right? They would rather, they were consistent at least, but they're, yeah, I don't know. But uh, the man uh, separated from God, left to his own thoughts, it goes downhill pretty fast. And it, and, and it leaves people in bondage. Scorpions and the, are unpredictable and deadly. 
this, this group was prepared for battle. They're looking to destroy. They got breastplates of like, like iron. And their, their king's name is Destroyer. And by the way, John has no idea what he's looking at. If you see the phrase like, and it happens over and over, they got, their hair is like that of a woman. Like, he's like, I don't, it's like that. I don't know what, it's, what I'm seeing. He's struggling for language and a vision that's already beyond him. They have crowns of gold on their head. Maybe this looks powerful. Hair like that of a woman. In the scripture, typically, a woman's hair is a sign of her a beauty or alluringness. So maybe this is an attractive thing. And you get close enough to say, oh, those teeth are, oh, they're lion's teeth. Too late, devoured. I don't know. I think that's probably this, this mix of things. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two more are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of silver and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So these four angels are probably demonic angels. We call them demons. Scripture sometimes calls them angels. They bring death. Again, when sin has its, and evil have its, its full effect in this world, it brings forth death. We see it all around us. We see it all the time. And maybe perhaps here in view is the, the powers in their mouth, which often is like ideology in ideas. You know, in the last century alone, in the 20th century, um, French historian Stéphane Courtois calculates that 94.4 million people died. 94, almost 100 million people died as a result of one idea. Communism. Socialism. It's an idea. I know we have politicians who say, well, it really hasn't been tried yet. I'm like, oh, I don't want to try it. Um, but, and I'm not, this isn't a, it's just like that's an idea. That's the most salient idea in our history. One idea, which a terrible consequence. It's an idea that destroyed millions of people. Before that, it was other ideas, and later it will be other ideas. I'm not saying any idea in the hands of sinful men is exempt from being able to do that. But it's it's unbelievable. And what was behind the horse was a tail looked like a serpent with a head that needed to be crushed. And this is God letting the floodgates open just a little bit, saying, let me show you. What happens when sin, the natural consequences have actually earthly consequence? But there's good news here. It is limited. The phrase one-third shows up like 12 times. Uh, It does significant damage, but not total. So there's still room for God's people to fulfill their missional calling of Revelation 10 and 11, which we're not going to get to today, of course, of the gospel witness going out. But without the hope of the gospel, and this ends, like I get it, this ends in the valley, and there we'll stay. 
without the hope of the gospel, the consequence of sin is usually not effective, if ever, to turn people to Christ. Look at the next verse. Let me just read it. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It doesn't plan... paints kind of a bleak picture. (laughs) So just let's think about a couple lines of application for us here. One is all of this should make us say this. The story's not over yet. We're going to sing a song after this, We Shall Sing, right? Uh, We're anticipating a better future. We see the effects of sin poured out in this world. This is a temporary reality. Sometimes we, we see it, it, it invades our life by the sin of others against us. Sometimes we feel the effects of it in our body. We say, this is not the end of the story. There's a better day coming. And we can't afford a utopian vision that believes, well, we can make that better day right now. No, that doesn't come apart from the gospel of Christ and the work of Jesus coming back into this world. Secondly, we need to be sober when we see the effects of evil in this world because we, none of us are far from it. There's a, uh, a Russian dissident named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who came out of Russian communism uh, and immigrated to America in the late 70s, wrote a book called, a fat book called The Gulag Archipelago. And in The Gulag Archipelago, he writes this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either but right through every human heart. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. That's the image of God. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. Thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evil doing calculated on the scale of millions. But alas, all of the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth at any time. Why? Because the line of good and evil, as Solzhenitsyn said, passes right through the human heart. So when we see the destructive power of sin in our life or in this world, or in, in this world, an appropriate response is, how is this still in me as well? How do I contribute to this? Actively or passively? By what I do or by, by what I don't do? How am I contributing to this? And when we see the fullness of this destructive power of sin, we don't stop looking at that, and we don't stop looking at, our, with looking at ourselves. We look one other place. I said in the beginning that the Old Testament picture of the filling up is a cup. Filling up the consequen- the, with the consequences of sin, which is, which is death and destruction. You remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes out to pray So just before he's arrested and crucified. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And in that cup Jesus was talking about was the fullness of Roger Williams' sin and yours. And he didn't tip it over a little bit. 
He didn't take a little bit out and flick it on us. He didn't dump it all on us. He drank it all down for us. He drank it all. That's what the cross was. So that we can look at the evil in this world and say, by God's grace, I don't want to participate in it, and the effects of it do not eternally touch me because Christ took it all for me. And even if you're suffering deep injustice in this world, that is a picture that one day he will make all things new and will make all things right. It's easy to forget that, hard to remember it. One of the, reasons, one of the ways we remember this together every week is we come to the table. And we celebrate what he drank down for us by coming, taking his bread and his cup and remembering he gave everything to drink that cup for us. If Christ has drank the cup for you, and you know that, you know that by this, you believe that he is your savior. You trust him. You look to him for salvation. If you do that, you know he's drunk the cup for you. If that is you, this table is open to you. Let me pray. I'll invite us to the table.